Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today. Today, we get to learn from Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. Dr. Salter-McNeil has been on the list of dream guests to have on this show since before we even launched our first episode, and so to have her here today is a profound privilege. By way of biography, Dr. Salter-McNeil is a sought-after speaker, preacher, author, professor, and thought leader with over 30 years of experience in the ministry of reconciliation. Dr. Brenda earned her Master's in Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, her Doctorate of Ministry from Palmer Theological Seminary, and was awarded the Doctorate of Humane Letters from both North Park University and Eastern University. That is an incredible bio. She is an ordained pastor and serves as a member of the pastoral staff of Quest Church in Seattle, Washington. If that name rings a bell to you, on our very first episode, you may remember Eugene Cho was our guest. We love Eugene Cho. He was the pastor there and is still a part of that congregation. We respect him a great deal. Last but not least, she is the Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies at Seattle Pacific University, where she also directs the Reconciliation Studies program. We are together today at Liberate, a 20-year celebration of international justice mission in front of a live audience. Friends, thank you for joining us. And would you please join me in very warmly welcoming Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. Oh my gosh. <laughs> can I tell you, can I tell them what we said right before the show, which was when I invited you to be on the show, I forgot to tell you that there would be an audience. So we thought, you thought it was just gonna be just like you and I in a little breakout closet, and here we are, standing room only. I am really grateful that you are here. Thank you so much. It's good to be here, and I am surprised. <laughs> okay, well, you are very gracious as well. Thank you. Okay, so I'm curious. We heard you and got the opportunity to hear you speak this morning. Uh, I am curious, how do you prepare? And I'm not talking about, like, when do you start reading, when do you start taking notes. I'm curious, how, does, how do you prepare your heart for, for taking the stage at a, at a conference like this at IJM? Yeah, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to any of it. Yeah. I think the journey of our lives prepare us for the things God has called us to do. So my guess is that there's a trajectory of all kinds of things that has shaped me. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I'm grateful for it. I say it all the time, in part because when I went to seminary, if you said you were Pentecostal, you were looked at with this kind of suspicious kind of glance like, oh, that yes. kind of church. Yes, right. But in, in, in truth, that prepared prepared me to be the kind of person who can in a moment listen to God and believe that God will speak. So when you hear me say things like I was in a line and God spoke to my heart, that for me is real because I was cultivated in a community of people who believe God is alive and well and speaks. And so I come to the preaching moment with that belief system. Yeah. It's at the foundation of who I am. And, and so I come to be in dialogue with God, I'll write the whole thing out. I study really hard. But in that moment, I also have an ear open for what does God want to say today to us? 
those of us gathered uniquely for this thing, what is God saying today? And I believe that God gets to interrupt my previously scheduled program and say whatever God That's wants right. to say, amen, today. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. And I'm never sure when it's going to happen, but I can do that because I grew up around people who didn't go to college and all that fancy stuff, but who believed that you should always have an ear open to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. And that's what was incredible about watching you this morning because like, it, it struck me, like I'm just emceeing the event, but it struck me even as I walked up there that we are talking, it's a different kind of room, right? It's a room that cuts across denominational, political, uh, cultural lines. I mean, this is really, there's no way to define the space right. too much, yet, yet you, or you cut right through that. I mean, is that, do, you, do you find that that is something that you intentionally have to work on or is that just your ability? Is that God speaking through you? You know, I don't know if I have an easy answer to it. I think that, um, I think that who we are, the, the journeys of our lives prepare us for the things God has called us to do. I think our personalities matter. I think these, you know, all of the stuff that's really popular right now, uh, the Enneagram and oh, yeah. back in the day we did the Myers-Briggs, you oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's certain things that kind of make it possible for me to have a little bit more of a sensory in, you know, um, kind of sensitivity to what's happening in an environment. But ultimately, I think it's a surrender. I think it has something to do with saying, this is not about me. So when I pray it out loud, it's not by might, it's not by power. And, and I mean that. It's really, it's not persuasive power. It's not my intellectual power. It's not my, you know, uh, personality. It's not those things. I can bring those things, but whatever happens that's life-changing, everything about that was God. Somehow God uses human people with all of our brokenness and with all of our limitations, and God still has a way of breaking through. And for that, I'm very grateful. Yeah, and as, as are we, that we get to experience that, I guess, with you, as you shared this morning. Uh, I'd love to dive into your story a little bit. Um, and uh, like, I'm curious about like little Brenda growing up in Trenton, New little Jersey. Brenda. Little Brenda. Did they call you Brenda growing up? Like, what was your little kid nickname? <laughs> little Brenda. Yeah, Brenda. Unless my mom was showing up upset, and then you were Brenda Joyce. Yeah. Oh, that's when it gets very real. Now you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was always uh, I was Eddie until I got in trouble, and then you know when they pulled out Edward, we got it. We got something going on. That's about to happen. Um, but I'm curious. Like you said, you grew up in a Pentecostal church, but was your was your family religious? Were you? Did you have a religious people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. I am the daughter of Leon and Dorothy Salter. I honor them. They're both in heaven now. I am the second of four kids. Uh, my sister is the eldest, and then I'm eight years, seven years later, and then right after me, there's a brother and then a baby, a younger brother that we call the baby brother, but... <laughs> That's the four of us. And um, we lived in a working class neighborhood where uh, people from different backgrounds, so it wasn't an African-American exclusively neighborhood, but there were Latino people in our neighborhood, a Hungarian lady, Ms. Yis, who used to have the best tomatoes in her backyard. And so it was just That's a incredible. really good working class neighborhood of a lot of people, some of whom were immigrants who had come to the United States. At that point, a lot of industry was in that 
that part of the country, and people were drawn to working in China, in the China Linux, uh, China was there. So there were a lot of things that caused people to come and have, uh, make a living there. And so I grew up believing that people kind of got along and that there was a sense of um, working hard and all that kind of stuff. We went to church in, where we went around the corner. There was a Baptist church maybe two blocks away, and that's where we as little chickens followed our parents off on Sunday to go to the little church. And so that's how I grew up. That's the neighborhood. That was the place. I think that I was out of the four of us the most inquisitive, so I'll, I'll own that. My mom would say, you talk too much, and, and she just didn't know a gift was trying to brew inside. She just, she just didn't see the Holy Ghost at work, but she just, she just talked too much. Yeah. And um, I also asked a lot of questions. So at some point, the church, the neighborhood church that we were going to was much more religious than it was spiritual. So you went to church because you were supposed to go to church. And you sat there for the service and you dressed properly and you didn't make noise, but it didn't resonate deeply enough transformatively for me. So at around 16, I began asking different questions. I began seeing um, hypocrisy, if the, be, if, you know, if the truth be told. It just felt like, why, why do we do this? And uh, that's when I began to go to this Pentecostal church. A friend of mine from high school played the piano at this church, and he invited me to come. And it wasn't utopic. No church is, I think. But what I saw there was a vibrancy of faith and a sincerity and a 24-7 commitment to Jesus. It was strict now. It was not the fun, fun-loving <laughs> they expected your life to change. Yeah, really. What were like some of the like the the like the rules? Oh yeah, no pants for women. We were a holiness church, and so lipstick, pants, earrings, all that stuff that looked like worldly stuff. So scripture was taken quite literally. I do love that you are both wearing pants and oh, lipstick I uh, and earrings I, right now. I have, been, like I have been liberated. Amen. <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> I have been liberated. No drinking. No no smoking, no chewing. I mean, it was just a strict kind of, anybody who knows what I'm talking about, just so, okay, so it was just, but, and, and I was critical of it at the time, but what I loved about them is they lived that. There was sincerity and integrity, and I would pay a lot of money right now for a little integrity. I would just love to see folk line up. I would just like to see things match. These people matched. You could wake them up three o'clock in the morning and they would, Jesus. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. And so let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm trying to bring pride and dignity to them because when you read my bio, people would think Fuller made me or, or the doctorate degrees made me or because I go to a church, that's where I, no, it's people that you will never meet, you will never hear about, their story will never be told. They would be throwaways ways. It's the kind of person in scripture where it says, and her story will be told wherever, you know, now you don't even know her name. That person's name is nameless in scripture, but something about that person's impact will be told wherever you hear this story again. That's what I want to be for them. You'll never meet them. You'll never know them. Most of them in heaven now, but I want them to have dignity so that they take credit for this. I'm happy that they polished it up at full they're in other places, That's right. That's but right. the core of this came from Emmanuel Tabernacle Pentecostal Church. Oh my! I, I love 
that you do that, there's always this honoring of, like, I, I just listened to the last sermon that you preached at Quest, and you opened it by, like, dedicating a sermon. Well, I've never heard this done ever. You dedicated the sermon to your parents, you know, and, because it was, like, uh, it, was, it was their anniversary, anniversary. and first date, right? Which <laughs> yes. is so, so sweet. But you, like, to dedicate a sermon, and I just love that there's this constant refrain that you will not let anyone, when, they're, when we're talking about you, forget where you came from. To that end, I'm curious about... Um, growing up in the church, in the Pentecostal church, is that where you learned or the, the rhythm and song of how you speak? Because there's, there's, a, there's a music to it. Oh, that's nice to hear. Um, thank you. Really, thank yeah. you. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, or is I, that just you? That's I'll it. tell you a couple things. Most people don't know this, and so I was a speech pathologist. Before I became a speaker, a minister, before yes. I even knew I could be a minister, I was just glad I, I got my life together and I was being better than, <laughs> you know, my mom was like, come on here. And so at some point I did become born again, and it wasn't any more act. I just didn't just visit the church because it was lively. I actually gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was 19 years old, a student at, Fuller, at um, Rutgers University. So so out of that commitment to Christ, I did make the radical changes that the church was looking for. For a little bit, you would have seen a really straight-laced young sister who took her Bible everywhere and was loving Jesus and right. giving my testimony everywhere. Right, because you're reconciling that, that intersection of like faith and religion. Like now you're in both worlds both. and holding them in tension and how do you... Exactly. Yeah. And I had college students around me who modeled something that helped a lot. I was able to see a younger version of that type of passion that was more palatable, more, I could emulate that. I could see it. I could, oh, that's what this looks like inhabited in this kind of a body. So my major was speech pathology. And I, um, I think I began to have this uh, love of language, love of the sound of words and all of that. I think there was something there for me. But I'll tell you a story that has something to do with reconciliation. I um, was put in speech therapy when I was in college. I was the only African-American person in my class and my teacher put me in speech therapy. Now I had no idea that I had a speech impediment. Up until that point, nobody ever mentioned it. And what she considered a speech impediment was what some people would call black English. Um, I would say the word A-S-K, ask, as acts. Um, I just, that's just the way we said it, ask, you know. Um, uh, or nowadays people will say, what's up? You know, right. and now you even spell it, what's up? You know, <laughs> but she heard that as an inability to speak. Yeah. And that's important to say, right? Because she didn't say you're bilingual or you say it differently. It was basically there's something wrong. There's an inherent flaw with how you're speaking. Yes, and you need therapy to correct this. And so to be the only black student in that major, in that class, to then, and I thought I spoke really well. My mother was very clear about diction and how well you had to present yourself and manners in public and all that kind of stuff that some of us probably were also socialized to, to be the best we could be in public. My mother raised us that way. But uh, it was very uh, emotionally humiliating and confusing 
to be a person who graduated top of my class from high school and then to be perceived as having an impediment. So part of the reconciliation process for people of color is to unlearn dominant culture's diminishment of yourself. And it takes a long time to do it. In this path towards becoming, I mean, now, like one of the preeminent scholars, writers, speakers, thinkers on, on reconciliation, do you feel like, like where else in your early journey did it, did it hit you <laughs> that things were not reconciled and that there were aggressions towards you? How, like, how did you wake up to this? Well, my husband's a psychologist, so I'll say we talk about this whole racial socialization, and he's the kind of guy who thinks a lot about all the theories behind it all. But I don't think there's any person of color who does not get socialized to think about this. This is like kindergarten stuff. Do you know what yes, I mean? Yeah. Your whole life, your parents are telling you, you're just, you're, you can't be as good as, you have to be better than. Uh, if I started on the, the journey of the various things we're told, every person who has come from a family like mine would say, oh yeah, my mom said that, oh yeah, my dad said that. You know, the whole thing about how to behave in front of police, where to put your hands, all that stuff, that stuff that you hear your whole life, you understand that society is looking at you a bit differently. And so to this day, I'm conscious of where my hands are when I go into a store. I'm conscious to not touch things. Um, it just is. I'm, and listen, I, I'm not, no violin here. The life God has given me is awesome. Oprah Winfrey gets stopped. Do you hear me? She went into a store to do something and um, Oprah, like I'm thinking, first of all, how did you not know that was Oprah? She's what, like the, what was wrong right. with you? She's like the most famous right. human on the planet, really. <laughs> how did you not know it was <laughs> yeah, Oprah? And right. then how do you diss Oprah? Right. You know what that I is, mean? That is against the laws of nature. Right? Yeah. So it is a thing. And I think the conversation I'm trying to have now more courageously is to say this is real of us. We have got to say it. I think we've got to say it's not unusual. What happened to me when she put me in speech therapy happens to kids all the time. True story, when I became a speech therapist, I was administered, I was a part of what's called the child study team. And the child study team is made up of a learning disability specialist, a sociologist, a psychologist, a speech pathologist, and all of us are trying to decide if this child that we're evaluating is age appropriate or should be put in what's educably mentally retarded is what was called back in the days I was doing the work. But, this, you know, should they be put in a class because they can't do the work at their age level? I am administering this test, and the test is a language acquisition kind of a, a, a assessment. Whether or not the person, the child, gets the concept. So you show them four pictures, the speech therapist has a word on your side, and you say the word and you see if the child identifies the concept by pointing to the appropriate picture. Make sense? And so I say I have four pictures of a food that this child sees, African-American child, maybe I think he was third grade, fourth grade. And so I say he has four things he can point to. I say wiener because that's the word on my side. That's right. He gets it wrong. I instinctively said hot dog instantly gets it right. Hmm. And then I thought to myself, Lord have mercy. How many children have been tracked out of their age-appropriate class and put in oh 
right? How many kids, the whole trajectory of their life was shifted because of these dominant culture leaning tests, standardized tests based on what standard? Right. It definitely wasn't on his standard. Because right. if we would have said hat dog, he would have got it, he would have got it right. But I thought, Lord, I'm complicit in this thing that's happening that's tracking children. And then the parent doesn't know because we all got these fancy titles. So they come into the room. We tell them that your child didn't pass the test. And of course, they want their child to be cared for as well as they can. So they agree with us. Okay, then we need to put them in this class. I left speech pathology because of that experience. So I, I keep <laughs> wanting to go through like a bite at a time of your upbringing, but I just let's skip that and let's just go to present day because I want to know like those tests have been given out for a long, long, long time. And time. so there is not just children. These are adults. These are old. These are people that are old. What does it do to generations of people that have, that are ejected from that system? What, yeah. does, that, what does that mean for a culture? I, I think what it means for the church okay, yeah. is that we have got to have that conversation. You see, that's what Jennifer Harvey in her book was critiquing about the reconciliation model. She's saying we're starting like at step 10 when we haven't even discussed two, three, four, five, right? And if we don't have that conversation, all we really want to do is make friends and look better so that we don't feel as bad about the desegregation in the church. And she says, but if you really want to reconcile something, you got to go back to what does it mean that there's probably generations of people, probably people in my own family, I think my brother, probably were misappropriated into classes, unable to fully thrive and reach their God, full God-given potential because the systems, everybody say systems, the systems. It's not about you liking me or me liking you. And for a long time, I was the nice reconciliation lady. I was. I was sweet and kind and biblical. Was I not? Wasn't I sweet? I was sweet. <laughs> so sweet. Because I thought that if I could just be <laughs> biblical enough and sweet enough and non-threatening enough and not angry enough, that you all would believe me and we would all see this as something God has called us to because we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And we would say, oh, I got it. But then I began seeing, oh no, this is not really changing us. We want to look better. We want to make sure we have the right people on the worship team. We want to have the right folks on the brochure. We do that better. Thanks be to God. Okay. Progress is progress. But we still hadn't gotten to the place where we were actually asking the question you just did. What does it mean that kids have been drinking polluted water and are probably lead poisoned in Michigan and years later it's going to literally impact the, the complete trajectory of their lives. What does that mean that in an environmental justice based on economic exploitation, you see, that's the conversation. How does the church respond to that? Do we care about that? Because that has nothing to do with making a friend. Zero yes. to do with making a friend. So I'm no longer trying to get us to make a friend. Okay. So, <laughs> make a friend if you want to. All right, no. Well, I'm fine not making friends. So let's talk about, 
So you wrote the book, Roadmap to Reconciliation. You know this. I'm not informing you of anything new. But it, it, at the start, of, <laughs> the start of the book, you uh, addressed a tension that I've always felt but never been able, like, I've never been able to, I never knew it was a tension, and that is the actual fundamental defining of the word reconciliation. You even shared kind of your own wrestle with, like, in my book, I'm going to try to not, I, I try to not name it this. Can you first walk through kind of that, that debate that happened in your mind, and then can you define reconciliation for us. Like, what does it mean? Yeah. Well, there are some people who feel like the word reconciliation is an oxymoron. They won't even use it. Uh, because they would say you can't reconcile something that has never been consiled together in the first place. Like if a husband and wife had been together and there had been a, you know, a breach in the relationship and trust had to be rebuilt, forgiveness had to happen, and now they come back together, that's reconciliation. But if you have never in the history of this country can name a time where it was good between racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity that we were ever a place where men and women had the ex exact experiences and we were all one big, happy, unified family, well then how can you reconcile something that has never historically been true? Okay. Just know that that's the critique out there right. and they are <laughs> tired of us talking about reconciliation because it almost feels like it makes us feel better about ourselves to say that we're committed to it, right? And so they won't even use the word, uh, especially when it deals with race. Racial reconciliation right. is where the rub comes in because when was racial reconciliation good? Right. When was the last time it was all just going well? Just going well. Yeah. When would that have been? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't know when America was great, so. <laughs> so, so I hear the critique and I take it very seriously. And so I began thinking, well, maybe what we really are talking about is kind of racial righteousness, which is good. I like that one. I like racial credibility or racial integrity. I like, there are all kinds of ways for us to think about it, but we've got this one big problem. Intercultural integrity. Uh, Intercultural integrity. That, that, that was good. That was like real close. Wasn't that you, good? You didn't get it, but like that was, I was like, oh, that's cool. I could go there. <laughs> yeah, it was Intercultural nice. integrity. Yeah, that was a good one. Our problem is that the word reconciliation is in the Bible. Uh, right, right. <laughs> we, just, we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Whether we like it or not, that seems to be our gig. So, so we can't just toss the word out. And that's what I would say to now my new friend, Jennifer Harvey. I love what she writes about in her book around the, rec the rep rep reparations paradigm, and I really completely embrace her critique, and that's true. I also know that what we cannot do is throw out a biblical theological concept and replace it with a sociological construct. We have to continue to grapple with what is the this word and what does it mean and what gives it its theological heft? Where does that come from? And so my definition of reconciliation is spiritual. I don't start from a historical beginning because I don't believe that the beginnings of reconciliation starts with our country or our racial issues. The beginning of that word that God entrusted us predates the United States. This is the call of God on the people of God from the beginning. And it's this, this is my definition. Reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process. That's what I believe. I believe it's a spiritual process that involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems 
to reflect God's intention, original intention, not our intention, but God's intention for all creation to flourish. So then the, the question I, I want to ask, and it's, it's huge, but like, how then, like, what's a step, what's anything we can do to like, take that from the academic thing we're thinking about, we're clapping about it, we'll tweet out that quote, right. to actually right. being reconciled, right? Because right? like, we've got to do it with right. something. I guess I want to say a couple of things yes. to both the audience listening to the podcast and to those of you who are here. I literally love the church. I really do. Sometimes I wish I didn't the way I do. I love you. And it's, it's just like my mom said when I was a little girl, um, you just talk too much. You're too friendly. I've always been this way. And I think that's one of the reasons why the call of reconciliation has fallen on my life. I literally love people. It's not an act. I'm not putting on. I really mean this. I love God, I really do, and I love you. And I want the church to regain its credibility. Because right now people don't believe us, and they shouldn't, because the real sermon is the way we live our lives. That's what they're looking for. And so when you ask what do we have to do, I think first we've got to realize that this is not about partisanship, it's not about politics, it's not about social stuff, it's about the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about recognizing and reevaluating, and I really mean this, it's almost we have to ask ourselves about our own discipleship. I have a friend right now who's working on a book after Charlottesville and the tiki torches and the young white men, you will not replace us, going to Jewish synagogues and threatening people. What in the world? Who of us ever thought we would see something like that? Someone going into a, a church at Bible study and killing the people in Bible study. Who ever dreamed we would see something like that? See, that's the kind of stuff we cannot be silent about on Sunday morning. I don't care what your political background, I don't care what your whatever, we cannot not care about that kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing that we have to say, what, what does the church say about that? What would God say about that? Because when Christians don't even get concerned about that, don't lament about that, it makes me wonder, what gospel did we hear when we first came in? Like, what did we get recruited to? And here's what I think. You ready? So I have a few books. I'm not trying to sell you anything, but the second you should one... should all buy her books. The, I'm, the I'll second, sell it for you. The yeah. second one is called A Credible Witness. Yes. And it was, it's based on Jesus and the woman at the well, because I began asking myself, like almost, how did we come to Jesus? And let me tell you what, what I now know about evangelicals, me being one. We came through the door of individual free will salvation. Jesus Christ is my personal. I asked Jesus to come into my and that's how we understand the gospel. That's how we came to Jesus. That four spiritual law or whatever we used, and thank God for that law, it helped me come over. But that kind of way in had nothing to do with anybody else. It had to do with me and Jesus, amen? And so when people start talking about social issues, racial issues, water in Flint, Michigan, people, their first reaction is, I didn't do anything. I didn't own slaves. I'm not racist. Do you hear the individualism in that? So we just can't wrap our brain around, you know, the corporate 
concerns that we have to to talk about systems, right? In that exchange with Jesus and the woman at the well, I saw something. We are reconciled to God because most people preach the woman at the well and all we hear about is how Jesus met her at the well and that day she was reconciled to God. By a show of hands, how many heard that narrative of the woman at the well? She had a horrible life. Yes. Jesus came to the well, met that lady and, and he read her. She came to faith and he, she was reconciled to God. But I'm here to tell you that more than one type of reconciliation happened in that exact same exchange. exchange. She got reconciled to God and a a man and a woman, a Jew and a Samaritan, amen, a rabbi and a woman of ill repute, all kinds of boundaries were bridged from that same interaction. So I believe that the gospel is the cross, both vertical and horizontal, and anything less than the cross, we're not preaching the gospel. We have got to say when people first come to Jesus, you are reconciled to God and you just became a part of a multinational family. In the same suit. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Amen. You are now connected to other people. Right. Period. This yes. thing in, in, in the book of Revelations yes. that every tribe, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, that's your new people. Yes. Amen. Yes. And if we didn't hear that, we need a redo. All of us, we need to go get a whole new redo and say, can I please come to the full gospel? I'd like to take the whole thing so that I don't have to keep trying to decide, is this the real gospel or is this the social gospel? It's the gospel. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> it's the whole gospel. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And none of us get to elect out of that. So in answer to your question, I really think the first step is to reevaluate Christian discipleship. Because if your discipleship is not demanding that of you, I'm, I'm needing to ask questions of what are we hearing in our new members classes? What are we hearing in our discipleship methods? Something's been lost. Something's been missing. And I would beg us all, pastors, if you're in the room, let's go back to what we're saying to people, how we're evangelizing and how we're discipling people into the kingdom of God because they're missing it. So when they hear a person like me call for reconciliation, they wonder, what does that have to do with it? And the fact that that's the question says that they missed something coming into the kingdom. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is clap worthy. They missed something. In our last moments together, I just want to make sure that, like, people just can't always just sit next to you and have oh, you just teach them. To tell that thing, huh? Tell the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I am curious, like, what, like, do you, is there, you've written, you, I like, have, have curriculum. I, I know you're not here to pitch, but I'd like you to, if you don't mind. Like, tell me what we could do, because yeah. I just, there's going to be a practical piece to this where people are like, help. This went help. by so fast. Gosh, I love this. I'm a new podcast member you now. Are, you are I'm so in. kind. You just, you this are was so all kind. to get me to be a part of this podcast now. I've been <laughs> listening to this. So listen, I had a, 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 a friend, a, a young man who invited me to speak. His name is J.R. Roscoe. So J.R., if you listen to the podcast, hey, what's up? And he said, Dr. Brenda, do you have like a, a, a strategy or an implementation process for people who read your book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, that they can take these principles that you've written about and, and implement them in their congregation or their organization. And I thought, no, no, I don't. 
just read the book. There are questions at the end of the book. Yeah, you'll figure it out. You just got go this. Ahead and read it. <laughs> <laughs> Let the spirit talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it came up several times in several places. And whenever that starts happening where you hear the same thing over and over again, I took it seriously as a responsibility because as much as I'm having so much fun being with you, these conferences will not be the end of this story. And we're all going to go back to real life complexity. And we're all going to be saying it was great when we were in that room. Now what do I do next? So I started feeling a sense of burden to, to take this call that's on my life more seriously and say, it's not about how good I do today. I hope I've done well. It's my heart's desire to do well. But after I'm long gone, the question becomes, how do you do this where you live? How do you implement this in your context? So my staff and I beta tested over a year, both in the United States and Canada, a process called Roadmap to Reconciliation, where we had churches and now Christian colleges and universities test this process over an eight-month period, nine-month period. It's now uploaded. It's a downloadable tool. Uh, you can go to our website. It's called RoadmapToReconciliation.com. Uh, the book has been, some things in the book have been updated based upon the test, but it literally is not a cookie cutter. It's not telling you what to do. It guides you through a process of assessing your context so that you can then use that as your tool or your guide to show you how to figure out how you contextualize this in a way that's relevant and livable given your specific needs and where you are. Reconciliation is contextual. It's not going to look the same way every place. Amen? And so, can I end with a quick story? I hope you would. There's a church that where I live in Seattle who has said to me, Dr. Brenda, we're meeting with a black church and we're going to be doing this with this black church. And I was supposed to be happy and clap because I'm black. <laughs> and so, you know, this was supposed to be the epitome of we're really doing reconciliation now. And I mean, I'm happy enough for them. But I said, well, well tell me more about your history of your church. Long story short, this church began years ago, a hundred years ago, as a mission to Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. yes, I said this. There's a lot to that. I said that? the same thing. <laughs> That's right. Huh? Isn't Tell that me interesting? about that mission. Right. right. And so they began talking about, about the mission more. And so I said, you know, before we talk more, can we just take a minute to pray? Back to the little Pentecostal girl here. So I said, well, can we just take a little minute to pray? So we're praying. And the pastor sitting right over here, because this is a multi-campus church, the pastor sitting right next to me during prayer, he said, <gasps> and so I thought, huh? So at, after prayer, I said, Pastor, did, was something significant for you during prayer? And he said, you know what? Our campus parks our cars every Sunday at the Native American Cultural Center. I never even thought about that before. And I said to them, I'm glad that you want to make friends with this black church, but could it be that what God is leading you to do is to go back to the purpose for which you were founded in the beginning. Maybe, just maybe, instead of saying you had Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil speak, maybe what you should do is figure out how you can find Duwamish people. Where are the Leshai people? Where are they? How can you go back and find those people and reconcile with why you were created in the first place? That would be reconciliation. Friends, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil.
to keep up with Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, please head to saltermcneil.com. Links to everything, books, all of that will be in our episode notes. You will also find out where she is writing, what she is writing, speaking, social media, preaching, everything, all of that good stuff. And of course, the conversation that began here will continue over on the new activist social media. A big thanks to the brilliance who scored today's episode, their tour dates, music, all of that is at the brilliance music.com and finally a big thank you to the live audience today here in Frisco, Texas. And with that, we go back into the world on behalf of Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil and my colleagues at IJM. I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.